Psalm 16, a victim of David. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. Nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Uh, our God, um, we thank you for your wonderful word. We thank you for the glory of Jesus. We thank you that he does what we can't, that he is who we can't be, and yet through your grace you unite us to him. You give us life and peace and security. Uh, we thank you for the gospel. And we pray now that for each of us you might open our hearts uh, to receive your word, uh, encourage us where we need it, challenge us where we need it, uh, lift our eyes to Christ now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, if you were here last week, you know, we, we thought a little bit about cynicism and wonder. And we uh, uh, thought about that from a great psalm, Psalm 8, cynicism and wonder. This week, though, we're thinking about fragility and security. Fragility and security. If you're listening into the news, it can be easy, pretty easy to feel a bit fragile, can't it? Uh, from, you know, uh, I just looked down at my news feed this morning um, from the devastating fires over on the East Coast. Uh, to international tensions, um, uh, really sad events that are happening in many places around the world. You can just kind of have that bit of sense of fragility. Um, not only that, it, but it's not just sort of big things, is it? It's also the smaller, more personal things. Uh, small things too. We each have our own experience of fragility. Um, maybe you can resonate with that. You, you have that moment where you feel just how quickly time is flying by, uh, how easily your plans can get completely thrown off, um, how weak and broken your body is. Um, ultimately, there's, uh, there's, there's a fragility that all of us at some point experience. Uh, there's an ultimate fragility, though, isn't there, that every person will experience. It's the fr fragility that's fueled by our own mortality. Um, by the certain reality of each of our own death. Um, the Bible talks about this. I'm reading Job at the moment in my devotional time. 
Uh, and he wrestles with this, um, there's this great line, uh, Job chapter 14, it's in. Uh, he says, mortals born of woman are, few, are of few days and full of trouble. They spring up like flowers and wither away. Like fleeting shadows, they do not endure. So, happy Sunday. <laughs> Welcome to church. Um, but it's, I mean, that's, that's true, isn't it? Mortals... A few of days and full of trouble. And it, it, all of that can... It's understandable, isn't it, that we have a kind of sense of fragility. Um, but similar to the last week, in the context of all that, that's why it's so lovely when you do see someone who just is completely secure. Uh, there's a photo up on the screen. And like last week, it's often kids who are the best at this. Um, this is a photo I got just at the right moment of one of my mates a, a number of years ago. Um, and what I love about it is just the look of complete kind of security on his son's face, looking down on his dad, utterly secure in his power to, hold, to catch him and keep him safe. That picture of complete trust and complete security. Well, friends, what Psalm 16 sets before us is a picture of absolute, eternal, complete security. Uh, it's another psalm written by David, the great king of Israel. Um, it's a psalm that basically says, well, it holds out this kind of complete security. It holds out this security. It's, it says it's available. In this, in, in, as we'll see as we go through, in the, in the logic of the psalm, what the psalm says is this kind of security is available to David, as he writes, or, or to the king. Uh, it's available to him because he has a totally undivided heart. Um, he's totally devoted to God. And you get that from the way the poem is structured. Uh, if you have your Bibles open, you can see it there. Um, you know, after, there's an initial, and it's on, the, on your handout as well, there's the structure there. After the initial uh, prayer in verse 1, there's two main parts. The first part talking about this undivided heart of the king. And the second part from verse 9 and 11 talking about the king's eternal security. Uh, and the connection between them is, is there at the start of verse 9. With that word, you can see it there, therefore. Um, the king has a heart that desires only God, and therefore he has complete security, complete confidence, because he knows that God will not let his faithful ones see decay. Uh, so basically the psalm is saying that wholehearted faithfulness to God leads to perfect security in him. Now, you might already be thinking that may not be as good news as you'd like it to be. Um, but it is, and we're going to see why as we travel through. But let's dive into the psalm and see how it plays out. Uh, it starts off with King David's, uh, this prayer of David. David's in trouble, and if you know anything about the life of King David in the Old Testament, that's just business as usual. Um, it, it's pretty common for David. We're not giving the details about where, uh, where this is set, but it seems as you read through that David's in fear of his life. Uh, he's facing that reality of his own mortality. Uh, and he turns to God in prayer. He says, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. It's such a simple prayer, isn't it? It's a confident prayer. Keep me safe. You're my God. 
You're my God. I have a relationship with you. I trust you. You're my refuge. You're my hiding place. You're my fortress. It's a confident prayer. And the reason he can pray with such confidence is gets filled out as you go through the psalm. Uh, David paints this picture of himself as someone with this undivided heart for God. Um, One author puts it that this psalm is about having your affections centred on God. Affections is like an old old word. Um, uh, It's more than just your feelings. It's talking about these kind of deep desires of your heart that you often actually don't know are there and the things that motivate your thoughts, your emotions, your, your actions, your deep desires of your heart, the yearnings that you have. And David says that his affections, these deep yearnings, are set on God. You see that in verse 2. I say to the Lord, um, to, again, like last week, to Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, you are my Lord, my, my master, my, the, the one I submit to and one I obey with my life. Uh, and it, it's this, the picture that David paints here is not one of kind of begrudging obedience. He's not saying, okay, God, you're, you're my master, I'll do whatever you say. Um, it's one of wholehearted obedience. He doesn't do it begrudgingly. He does it full of joy and trust. Because as he goes on in that verse, it's really one of the most astounding things, I think, in this whole psalm. Apart from you, I have no good thing. What an incredible claim to make. He's, David's saying here he's not looking for goodness, he's not looking for joy and fulfilment and purpose in any place other than in God himself. Um, through his relationship with God. He's not looking over God's shoulder at something else or someone else that might give him fulfilment. Uh, he's not holding out for a better offer. You know, we can do that often. David's not doing that. He's not sort of holding off and thinking, oh, well, okay, I'm, it's, okay it's okay to have you now, God, but maybe there's something better down the track. <clears throat> maybe I'd be more complete if I had this other thing, this possession, this job, this house. I'd be more satisfied with this experience, this drug, this drink, this sexual pleasure, this relationship. Uh, I'd know I'm really okay if I had this affirmation, uh, if I had those people accepting me and praising me. Look, there, like you could go on, right? There's infinite options for where David could find his goodness. But he says he has eyes only for his Lord, for Yahweh. He's not looking over God's shoulder to somewhere, something else. He knows that Every good thing, every good thing comes from God anyway. And the ultimate good thing that God gives is not a thing, but is God himself. The ultimate goodness that God gives is himself. Every yearning for goodness can be satisfied, David knows, through his relationship with God. Uh, He goes on in verse 3 and 4, and he pictures these two groups of people. Um, the holy people in the land, the, these noble ones who serve Yahweh. And then in verse 4, those who run after other gods. And David's clear which group he lines up with. Verse 3, I say of the holy people who are in the land, 
They are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. He, de- he delights in these noble ones. He, um, he de- but he doesn't want to have anything to do with idols, with false gods. Uh, one way to think about an idol uh, is uh, they, they are what happens when you take a good thing from God and you turn it into an ultimate thing. Uh, you turn it into a God thing. You take some created thing and you look to it to give you what only God can give you. Uh, it's the opposite of verse 2. It is looking over God's shoulder to something else. Um, some other ultimate source of goodness and fulfilment and purpose. But David knows that's a false way. These idols will offer a lot, but they will always fail. Actually, they don't just fail, they leave you worse than before. Verse 4 those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood, these sort of sacrifice offerings to such gods, or take their names on my lips. He will not pour out offerings to them. He, is, he paints this picture of himself as fully devoted to the one God. Okay, well, the next couple of verses, we're, uh, we'll, we'll keep moving through the psalm. The next couple of verses, it uses this language that's really loaded for Old Testament believers. Now, verse 5, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. It taps into the blessing of God to his people when they entered the promised land in the story um, uh, as they left um, um, uh, yeah, if, as they came into their promised land. Words like portion and lots, boundary lines, inheritance. Uh, David says those blessings were good, but they were, just, they were actually just signs pointing us back to you, God. You are the real portion, the lots, the boundary lines, uh, the inheritance. The real blessing is to have you. And he says, as he goes on, he says, he's so taken up with this relationship with God uh, that God's word to him, God's counsel to him, becomes, it's like it becomes internalized so deeply uh, that it's, it becomes David's own word. He's stored up the Lord's words in his heart, verse 7, um, so that even at night, he says, my heart, my heart instructs me. You, you get the picture, David's painting this, completely united, devoted relationship with God. And verse 8 sums this up with another remarkable claim. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So if you're asked to ask this king that's pictured in this psalm, if, you're, if you were to ask him, what is, your de- what is it that you desire that controls your affections? What is it that sits over your heart? He would have a simple answer. He would say, I want the Lord. I want my God. I want to know and delight in him more deeply. I want to enjoy every good gift that comes from him without idolizing it. Uh, I want to drink from the endless wellspring of living water that he provides and he alone Well, 
That's this king's undivided heart. Uh, And because of that, because he has this relationship with God, he enjoys this really beautiful eternal security. And that's where you get this therefore in verse 9. Because of verses 2 to 8, because of his relationship with God, the king, this king has absolute confidence that God will answer his prayer in verse 1. Verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest secure. He has this absolute confidence in God. And it's a security that's so complete that it even covers the one kind of unstoppable force that makes every human being fragile. Um, It even covers the final great enemy of death itself. Verse 9, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. The ultimate source of our fragility. Um, Woody Allen once uh, famously said, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Um, Which is, of course, another way of saying, (laughs) I'm really afraid of death. (laughs) Um, we, uh, at the end of the day, that, that speaks to all of us, doesn't it? Um, there's something deep within each of us uh, that we resonate with that fragility, that fear of death. But here is the, an incredible thing. This king of Psalm 16 does not live under the shadow of the fear of death. He, he, he can live with a glad heart. He can live with a tongue that's joyful. He can live entirely confident that the grip of death will not hold him. I love how the psalm ends, though. It's not just this negative hope. It's not just uh, not dying. It's much more than that. The psalm finishes with this beautiful picture. Verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Eternal pleasures. Um, There's no sense here that being in relationship with God is missing out on anything. It's no sense that it's really giving up on anything, any kind of real pleasure, real joy. Uh, there's a, um, a famous essay by C.S. Lewis, uh, uh, an author. I've quoted this before, but it's just so, such a great quote. He wrote this essay called The Weight of Glory. And he writes this. Uh, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. 
we are far too easily pleased. You see what this psalm is saying? It's saying, well, here is the holiday at the sea that we, we can't even imagine because we're so used to our own mud pies in the slum. Um, eternal pleasure at God's right hand. Well, it's a wonderful psalm, isn't it? It's just such a wonderful psalm. It's also a bit of an uncomfortable psalm. If we read it rightly, if we follow the logic that's here in the psalm, it's also a psalm that should actually make us pretty uncomfortable. It's, it's a psalm that we can't actually sing for ourselves, not truly. Um, because... You do run after other gods. You don't always set God before you. Uh, your heart doesn't long only for him. I look over his shoulder all the time. I keep trying to find satisfaction and peace and security in other places, and so do you. And the ultimate proof of this, the proof of that is that we do go down to the realm of the dead. Uh, our bodies do see decay. Well, and what's really interesting is if you read this psalm in the big picture of the whole Bible, it becomes clear that David himself knew that he couldn't sing this psalm about himself either. It's a little bit strange. But David himself knew that this psalm wasn't about him, not ultimately. He knew he, he was a sinner. He knew that he wasn't perfectly faithful to God. You get that in other psalms, places like Psalm 51. Um, but David knew he would die as well. He knew for sure. Right at the start of his reign, God gave him um, a, a word from the prophet Nathan. And he told him, uh, God revealed to David, he told him that, his days would come to an end and that he would rest with his ancestors. You can read that in 2 Samuel 7 if you want to follow it up later. Uh, so David knows that actually he will face his own, that his body would see decay. Um, but in that passage, 2 Samuel 7, God also promised David that there would be someone coming out of his line, a king who would set up an eternal kingdom who would bring God's promises to fulfilment. I think what's going on here is that David writes this psalm, Psalm 16, with those promises in mind. He knows that the portrait he's painting is not ultimately about him. He knows that it's about this promised eternal king, this king that God had promised would come. And that's ex actually, it's exactly how you find the New Testament reflecting on this psalm. Um, one of the best places to go for that is Acts chapter 2. Um, it's after Jesus has risen, died and risen again. One of his disciples, Peter, is talking to this huge crowd and he quotes it. It's up on the screen. He says this. Uh, this is after Jesus' death and resurrection. Peter's talking to this huge crowd. Um, Acts chapter 2. Fellow Israelites... I can, I can tell you, oh, he quotes the Psalms, first of all, before he says this. He quotes this Psalm, and then he says, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. His tomb is here to this day. 
But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has now poured out what you now see and hear. You see what Peter's saying there? The resurrection of Jesus, that real event in history, that shows that Jesus is the true king of Psalm 16. He's the one Psalm 16 is all about. He was the one who lived a perfectly faithful life with God his Father every day of his life. Uh, So that when his body doesn't decay, when he isn't abandoned to the realm of the dead, we can have absolute confidence that he is who he says he is. This is Jesus' psalm. It's his song. And friends, um, here is where this... You know, we're kind of thinking if we read this with us in mind, it becomes a little bit unsettling because we know the reality of our own hearts. Uh, but here is where this psalm is transformed for us, actually. It can become for you not an unsettling psalm, but the most wonderful news. The good news of Jesus, friends, is that when you trust him, when you put your faith in him, you become united to him. You come under his wings. You enter his family so that you can sing, by grace I am redeemed, by grace I am restored. And now I freely walk into the arms of Christ my Lord. He shares with you everything that is his. If you're here today and you're checking Jesus out and you're interested to know who he is, what his claims are, that's basically what it means to be a Christian. To have your life anchored in Jesus and in what he has done for you. And then to be given freely as a gift all of his life, his security, his peace. And that means, friends, there's a wonderful reversal that goes on here for us. You see, the logic of the psalm, without, without Jesus, the logic of the psalm is that your desire shapes your destiny. The king's perfect desires, his undivided heart for God, means that he has an eternal security, his destiny that is secure. But do you see how the gospel turns that logic around? Because of what Jesus has done for you, dying for you at the cross, rising to new life, because of that, your destiny is not dependent on your desires on your undivided heart. If you are in Christ, your destiny is completely tied up with him, not with yourself. Um, I'll come back to C.S. Lewis, this same uh, essay he wrote called The Weight of Glory. He finishes it up like this, just a wonderful reflection on the incredible nature of what's going on here, this promise of glory. 
it is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination. He's talking of standing before God where he will see our divided hearts. But no, the incredible news that those who trust Christ will actually survive that, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work, or a father in a son. It seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. So it is. Friends, in him, you will be kept safe. In him, your body can rest secure. In him, you have a sure hope of resurrection from the dead. Resurrection to an eternal life that is the joy and the pleasure that you were created for, that every longing of your heart yearns for. Your destiny in Christ is secure. The gospel breaks that link between your heart and where you're going. But there is more. There is still a connection between your destiny and your desires. It's just that it's kind of the other way around. In Christ, our sure and certain destiny now can begin to shape our desires. We can actually be shaped like this. We can't, we can't claim that verses 2 to 8 of this psalm for ourselves. None of us can. But in the security of the gospel and through the power of God's spirit at work in us, Verses 2 to 8 of this psalm are actually beginning to come true within us, within you. That is what God wants to do in your life, to take your divided heart and heal it so that you can say more and more, truly, apart from you, I have no good thing. This great work of God in your heart to take your idols and expose them, to smash them down, um, so that you know that they only lead to more and more misery, but that you can see what a delightful inheritance you have in God. He wants to do this in you, to stop your eyes from looking over his shoulder and to fix them on him. So, friends, in the, light of, in the light of Jesus, what this psalm leaves us with, I think, is an unshakable encouragement. An unshakable encouragement. But it's also an invitation, right? It's also an invitation for each of us to examine our own hearts and to ask God to reveal within us our desires, our, our affections, our idols, um, our misdirected desires. And not just to reveal them to us, but to begin to reshape them through the power of his gospel. Uh, so that we would be able to say this psalm more and more, more and more truly. That's what 
Psalm 16 offers to us. I'm going to pray, and then I'll invite you um, to stand and say this psalm together. Um, we say it to say it in Christ, to say it in the security of what he has done for us, knowing that he is the one who sings it first and that he gives it to us to then sing so that we might be more and more shaped by it. Let me pray and then we'll say it together. Our God, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. Thank you for his eternal security with you. Thank you that you did not let him see decay. Uh, our Father, we thank you. We praise you for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We thank you for the hope that gives. Uh, we thank you that our security can now be anchored not in our own goodness, not in our own hearts, but in the complete and secure achievement of Jesus for us. Lord, um, I pray for all of us wherever we're at that we might see more of Jesus today we might have our hearts transformed more and more into his image, uh, that we might be shaped to be more and more like him. Give us this kind of undivided heart. Help us to repent where we need to. Help us to trust you. Uh, shape our hearts, we pray, for your glory and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, if you'd like to stand. Um, Let's say this psalm out loud together. Uh, as I said, knowing that Jesus actually says this for us uh, and gives it to us to shape us more and more into his image. Make this your prayer today. Um, let's say it together. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you I have no good thing. I say of the holy people in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delights. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand.